This is everything you want to know about non-clinical careers for physicians. For Third Evolution, I'm your host, Robert Pretty. Emotional intelligence. It's a topic countless books, tapes, podcasts, seminars, and other programs over the years have focused on. Emotional intelligence. At one time, it seemed that one's emotional intelligence was like your personal Rosetta Stone. Your emotional intelligence would translate your level of success. Well, yes, emotional intelligence is important. But what I would ask any physician transitioning to the non-clinical world is this. Do you have organizational intelligence? Yes, emotional intelligence is a popular topic of conversation. But it seems to operate from the position that many of us are not particularly socially skilled and aren't able to read between the lines and cope with the unspoken or even misspoken communications of those around us. Outside healthcare, physicians are often labeled as difficult people to work with, independent, headstrong, don't share well or don't play well with others, and often lacking in emotional intelligence. Well, I disagree. I believe most physicians function at a fairly high emotional intelligence level. I believe most physicians tend to read their patients quite well and generally respond to them in both an appropriate and an effective manner. However, I would say most function at a fairly low organizational intelligence level. Organizational intelligence is that ability and desire to navigate the political infrastructure of the average non-clinical organizational setting. While emotional intelligence is mostly marked or measured in ability, organizational intelligence is a is well it's more of a balance between ability and desire or intent. Physicians' ability to effectively manage a wide range of patient types is indicative of a fairly high emotional intelligence quotient. Their stereotypically poor relationships with hospital administrators is less about ability than about intent or desire. Frankly, my experience, based on 20-plus years in healthcare administration, is most physicians simply don't care about those relationships. Let me give you an example. I was speaking with a client recently who was frustrated because he was feeling overlooked for some important corporate roles. His job at that time had already shifted significantly to about 60% administrative and 40% clinical. And doors continued to be opening for further administrative responsibilities for him. However, as he said to me, I feel that some people stop listening to me when I offer, you know, really honest opinions. And aren't honest opinions what we administrators value from physicians? Well, sort of. That was, that was his definition, so to speak, of his honest opinion. He went on to explain to me that the, the health system CEO had asked his opinion on a significant issue. This was his example. His response was effectively a one-sentence condemnation of the issue before simply turning and walking away. His somewhat quizzical comment to me was, why did it seem the CEO effectively excluded him from any future discussions of that issue? Well, what's your opinion? To this physician executive, he genuinely believed he had been nothing other than straightforward and direct with his comment. He addressed the CEO the same way he would address a colleague who might inquire about the efficacy of a procedure or a new pharmaceutical. This physician executive considers himself an expert in various areas, and rightfully so. In those areas, he expects his opinions to be accepted and respected at face value. 
Well, that works among colleagues, among support staff, and, and often even among patients. In other words, his emotional intelligence relative to his clinical environment is highly suitable. However, his organizational intelligence, oh, it's in the gutter. Why? Because the non-clinical, administrative, executive worlds are not as direct. Expertise is considered variable and somewhat subjective. The marketing people may second-guess the finance people. Operations may not trust staff-level positions, and the CEO is the loneliest person in the comp company. It, it's, it truly is not just what you say, but how you say it. To paraphrase Daniel Patrick Moynihan, you may have your own opinions, but you cannot have your own facts. And non-clinically, there are often more opinions at play than actual facts. Or as a wise and highly successful mentor advised me one day early in my career, being right, Bob, being right simply is not enough. The differences between what many study as emotional intelligence and what I term organizational intelligence are somewhat stark. In emotional intelligence terms, most physicians are acutely selfly aware. They know and understand their emotions and they learn to control them to the environment. Physicians are also keen, keen on interpersonal development. Think simply, see one, do one, teach one. And physicians learn to manage relationships based on self-defined importance and interest. How many physicians do you know whose staff believes she walks on water while administrators, well, they believe she flies on a broom. And lastly, consider socioeconomic factors. That is sociability, social and economic awareness. Well, really, have you ever sat in a surgeon's lounge and listened to a group evaluate coding modifiers and various values of bundling and unbundling codes? It's a gab fest beyond compare. So in that context, most physicians are quite high on the emotional intelligence scale. I would tend to say, categorically, likely about as high as any group of professionals. It's just that clinical practice differs so drastically, so dramatically from other professions. Those outside medicine simply fail to see just how much emotional intelligence most physicians really have. So why do too many, way too many physicians fail in non-clinical, administrative, organizational settings? Well. That's the difference between emotional intelligence and organizational intelligence. Emotional intelligence tends to measure us in our lane, you might say. Physicians can be seen as highly emotionally intelligent in the context of their medical practice. Likewise, a corporate CFO can likely be highly emotionally intelligent within the confines of her stack of quarterly reports or while explaining the company revenue curve to the board of directors. Emotional intelligence tends to be discussed mostly within the confines of our known environments. The analysis around dealing with change as an example of emotional intelligence is most usually defined as some change affecting existing structures or processes. Therefore, the example, or perhaps better said, the question becomes this. How well can a CFO address a structural failing within her business unit? Such a process would require the ability to work and communicate directly with specific parties involved in both the problem and in the correction. Then, to marshal the forces, so to speak, to create and implement corrective actions to understand those changes within the various circles of influence that were impacted by both the errors and the corrections. And finally, 
to possess the self-awareness to package and present this in such a way as to accept appropriate blame without translating that blame into self-persecution or worse, failure. And here's the answer. How well would most CFOs like wading through that series of challenges coupled with a likely mix of known and unknown factors? How well? Well, most likely pretty well. Because while that CFO is being asked to address knowns and unknowns, to admit failures and to make possibly significant process or structural changes within her business unit, well, that's the job she signed up for. Let's face it, unknowns are only unknowns until we know them. I once had a physician business associate who found himself thrust nearly instantaneously from a clinical setting into a very high-rolling corporate post. I recall at the end of one particular day that began with breakfast meetings and ended with a business dinner, he commented that for all his years in medicine, he'd really underestimated the exhaustingly demanding nature of healthcare administrative work. All I could do was smile and shake my head. Well, that's what we do as administrators. That's our lane. And that's where we're emotionally intelligent. And that brings to mind a friend of mine who was the chief administrative officer with one of America's flagship healthcare institutions. Upon her retirement, she commented, I've got to make some real adjustments. I haven't had breakfast or dinner at home in more than 15 years. Her emotional intelligence was getting ready to grow and change in some exciting new ways. But let's turn those tables around. Take that corporate CFO again and tell her she needs to step into a small, cramped, sterile 9 by 12 room and tell someone they're going to have to have a very serious operation. And they're going to have a lengthy period of therapy and recovery and that their life may never be the same again. That person who just tackled a potentially career-ending problem in her own lane with great aplomb and calm, just might have some challenges in delivering that message. You and I know that's a gross understatement. She's probably going to feel horrible about herself, have little ability to find upsides to present to the patient, look for ways to end the encounter as quickly as possible, and appear probably somewhat socially inept. Well, it's the same when a physician leaves a very controlled environment he or she has occupied for years, sometimes decades, whether the exam room or a surgical suite, there are protocols to be followed, relationships to be managed, shared objectives to be sought, and processes to be managed and followed. You've turned in your scrubs or lab coat for a suit and tie, and you've never sat in one spot for so long in your life. Suddenly, and more than ever, your expert opinion is being questioned. You're asked to equivocate on your position. You've moved from fairly black and white decision-making to compromise. Compromise is 80% of what you want enough. How about 60% or 40%? Your high emotional intelligence suddenly doesn't seem as high. Your conversations aren't about direct patient care, perhaps not about patient care at all. So how firmly do you stand your ground? It's time to begin thinking more about your organizational intelligence. What does it mean? How is it done? The differences between organizational intelligence and emotional intelligence are essentially a matter of perspective, but also very much a matter of application. Your emotional intelligence was learned. It was developed. It evolved over time to the point that it became innate. Your organizational intelligence is now. It's do or die. It's reinventing yourself in the present and on the fly. 
And it's about realizing that telling business people you never realized they work so hard isn't a compliment. And it's understanding that compromise is the antithesis of the absolutes you write in a patient chart. Developing a high level of organizational intelligence is based on that realization and putting it into play. You have to ask yourself how others will likely react to your opinion. Who has a vested interest in a project or a program becomes relevant to what you say about it and how you say it. I'm not saying you don't point out problems or concerns, but you look for ways to present them that can be organizationally intelligent. I once had a colleague who never openly disagreed with anyone about anything. However, when he was in disagreement, he would simply state, could we challenge that? Hmm, well, he's not disagreeing, and it's not just him, but we. We just want to challenge a position or a statement, an assumption. Let's test it a bit. Actually, he was disagreeing, but in a very agreeable, organizationally intelligent way. You can do the same if you try. Let's look at organizational intelligence in four separate but supportive categories. Organizational awareness, organizational hierarchy, organizational culture, and organizational objectives. Let's talk about organizational awareness. What is the organization about? What's happening in the market? What are the responsibilities of different departments? Do business units or departments clash? Who usually wins? Your objective in assessing your organizational awareness is to be able to make sense of the day-to-day -day interplay you observe. You want to understand internal and external factors that are most important day-to-day. -day. If the organization's biggest client just lost its biggest client, you need to know why and what impact, if any, that may have on your organization and what impact it may have on you and those in your immediate work team. Working in your medical practice, if LabCorp went out of business one day, you'd have a new vendor in a matter of hours. Easy peasy. If your front desk clerk hung up the mouse pad, other staff would fill in. A temp could be called and a permanent replacement could be found in a week or less. However, now if you lose an important member of your work team because of a slowdown caused by a client's business troubles, what do you do? That person was integral to your success, but their position funding is currently contingent on another company entirely. What you do is look for other work of equal or similar value. Losing that person will likely mean some of your objectives, even your responsibilities could change, and that could impair your ability to do your own job well. Let's turn to organizational awareness. Organizational awareness goes beyond simply knowing your job and the people you're working with, and for it means understanding your organization, the organizations your company is reliant on, and knowing your industry. I have a good friend who owns a company that rents shared office space to small businesses. As a matter of fact, I'm one of his clients. His business is to provide clean, technically connected office space with appropriate support staff and resources to his small business clients. Well, that may sound like a pretty straightforward business. Your job is to make sure office space is clean, available, copiers work, reception staff are courteous and efficient, yada, yada, yada. He also has great mountain views from the middle of Denver's financial district. That's a pretty cushy business, right? Well, not really. Whenever he and I have time to talk, the conversation nearly always moves to the oil and gas industry and what's happening there. 
He follows that market with precision. The price of oil, who's drilling, who's not, the global market, he follows it all because a significant percentage of his tenants are remote offices for many, many oil and gas companies. It's a volatile business. And when it drops, even for only a month or two, offices go vacant. When it's up, he can lose business because he can't keep up with the demand. He practices a very high level of organizational awareness, not just about his direct business, but about the businesses of his many tenants he has to. Now let's turn to organizational hierarchy. I'm sure you're familiar with the organizational chart of the business you're in and maybe other businesses around you, but you need to know more. You need to know where you fit and you need to know where others fit and be acutely aware of both the formal organizational chart and the informal order of importance. As a physician, most of you are accustomed to what we would call a flat organization. That is, you believe or at least perceive you can speak with anyone and within your span of work, you tend to allow the same. The front desk clerk can interrupt you just as easily as the system administrator. Sometimes I speak from experience, the clerk actually has greater access. Regardless, today there is likely a much more defined formal and informal hierarchy. And being a physician, even the physician, as in the only physician, may not provide you any special privilege. The bottom line is simply this. Know where you stand and learn to get along with anyone higher up the formal or informal ladder. Now, what's your organizational culture? Every organization has a culture. Your practice has or had a culture. Learn the culture. Culture exposes itself in why and how people do their jobs, what they deem important, what constant issues, constant questions, constant statements of objective are always a part of the discussion, the process, or the outcome. Organizational culture often gets described as the politics of an organization. When that's the case, culture is often cast as a negative. That's what happens when someone says this, this is a very political place to work. What that also means is that that individual either disagrees with or runs counter to the culture of the organization. If you don't notice the organizational culture, it's most likely because you're in sync with it. Regardless, you want to understand the culture and learn how to identify it. Why? Why, if you seem comfortable in the culture, do you need to search it out? The reason why is that it can, it can change. And if you don't understand the critical actions, what I might call the secret handshakes, or as they say in gambling, the tells of the organization, then you won't understand when or if culture changes. And by the time you find yourself grumbling with a few coworkers about how political the organization has suddenly become, well, by then it's too late. I'll share a brief example. I once worked with one of the top five healthcare information technology companies. During my thankfully brief tenure with the organization, the, the, the organizational culture was like the special of the day on a menu in a cheap diner. My business unit had its name changed about a half dozen times, and with each name change came a new mission and vision, and some new face would emerge as Mr. or Mrs. Informal Influencer. The hierarchy and the culture was in constant flux. But let me give you another example. Let me give you the antithesis of that. I used to work in Peoria, Illinois. At that time, the international home of Caterpillar. 
The joke among cat people was that they bled yellow. Well, several decades ago, they experienced some severe labor strife and the union walked out of the plants. Within only a couple of weeks, all of the salaried staff. That meant corporate vice presidents to nearly every level of office support staff. Everyone worked part-time on the factory floor. The strike lasted many months, but during that time, the non-union staff stepped up and stepped in to keep the company afloat. Regardless of your opinions of union versus management issues, that type of corporate culture, that esprit de corps, it's very impressive. Organizational objectives. Next step. Said another way, simply what's important. What do you have to achieve at both a tactical and a strategic level? Stop and think about that. Tactical objectives and strategic objectives. Let's start with tactical. I've talked about this before. In this sense, the easiest way to lose your new non-clinical job is to only focus on tactical objectives. And by tactical, I'm speaking of those very clear and immediate projects in which you're engaged. Specified, key word here, specified. Objectives that may also be defined as assignments. And that is to say what you've directly or implicitly been told to do. Again, I've spoken about this before. I've talked about clients distraught because they lost their new job. But as they tell me, I did everything I was told. That's where strategic objectives come into play. You're less likely to be told how to help the organization accomplish its broader, perhaps bigger picture objectives. However, every strategy becomes a tactic. Otherwise, it tends to simply evaporate. It becomes your ticket to success and to job security if you can create, implement, or at least suggest new tactics that support or accomplish a strategic objective of the organization. Again, both are important. Completing your assignments individually and as a strong work team contributor is elemental to staying in the good graces of those around you. But keeping an eye towards the future, toward strategic tasks, literally creating your next project. That's the key to working on your terms versus someone else's and generally the best insurance against being the first out the door when and if times get tight, like today for example. Just a quick recap, I'm sure you are high on the emotional intelligence scale, but consider these issues as you transition away from clinical work and into the non-clinical workforce. Organizational awareness. So again, be organizationally aware. What is the organization about? What is its market role and position? And what are its important goals, accomplishments, and relationships? And how do they all play together internally and externally? Understand the organizational hierarchy. Know where you stand, but also know where others stand as well. And that's both formally and informally. Seek the support and the confidence of those in power and with power. And then organizational culture. What drives the organization? What are those underlying factors that make the organization what it is? Define how people work together, how customers define or describe the organization. Most importantly, know whether or not you are in sync with the culture. And finally, know the organizational objectives. What are the tactical and strategic objectives that you are engaged in and that you are not engaged in? Endeavor to be involved in important initiatives that play prominently into strategic objectives. You may even be the person to initiate them. 
Emotional intelligence attempts to provide a framework to help define successful characteristics for people to aspire to. Organizational intelligence, likewise, endeavors to provide a framework, but at a more functional level of key factors or organizational life that, when applied well and critically, can help you be more successful as a physician executive. As always, if you have questions or comments about this podcast or anything involving non-clinical careers for physicians, don't hesitate to call me at 720-339-3585. That's for voice, message, or text. And visit me online at thirdevo.com. For Third Evolution, this is Robert Pretty. Thanks for listening.